Welcome to Bank of Singapore Unplugged. Welcome everybody to the Bank of Singapore 2023 Opportunities on the Horizon. My name is Robert Reed. I'm, I'm the global head of uh, alternative investments and managed solutions at Bank of Singapore. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined on the panel with uh, my three panelists to discuss three or four questions. And I think the poll just now touched upon 2022 thoughts and reflections, 23 how to position, how to think ahead. And we've heard a lot from Gene and the team around how we think about that at Bank of Singapore. Cash. I think it was interesting to see everyone's response on the poll. We're going to talk about how to think about cash. Is cash for comfort? Uh, and then the final one, allocating to alternatives. So a little bit of introduction. Um, I'd like to introduce Chad first, who is from Arctos Partners. He is a uh, professional athlete, multidisciplined, uh, had played professional baseball and American football, and now is a private equity investor. Uh, to his right is Pak Seng Lai, who is the head of uh, wealth distribution at Blue Owl Capital. And then to my left is Tai Hui from JP Morgan. Uh, I'm going to try and blend a couple of the conversations with their thoughts and insights. Uh, and so I hope this is interesting for you. So let's kick it off. First question is, without living too much of the PTSD of 2022, Tai, what are your thoughts and reflections? And how could investors have stayed ahead or caught some relief from the 2022 volatility? Yeah, look, I think it's never good to waste a crisis, right? I think the lessons learned from last year, it's going to be really important in how we shape our investment decisions and asset allocation, not just for 2023, but really going beyond that. So maybe three things from my end, and uh, I'll pass over to the other experts. The first thing is that uh, we have to seriously question whether we are going back to the zero-rate environment that we've been so used to in the past 10, 12 years. Um, central banks are no longer uh, what I call a, a kind mother. You know, every time a kid falls over, they'll go and embrace and kiss and hugs. It's now become more of a tough dad or an Asian parent where we have inflation problems, we need to address it, even that, if that means growth is going to struggle. So a couple of things. One is that the end of cheap money is probably behind us then how do we um, make our capital work harder in order to achieve our financial objectives? So that's the first thing. The second thing is, as uh, risk-free rates continues to rise, the competition for capital is going to intensify. So just coming back to the last panel or the last, uh, last session, quality companies that are making money, that to me will be increasingly important and popular. Whereas companies that have a great story or a very great idea or got good concept, but doesn't make money for a very long time, I think that will increasingly be penalized by investors. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think is interesting, again, coming back to diversification, is that I think the concept of a simple stock bond portfolio as a way to diversify is going to be severely challenged. At the end of the day, we went through four decades of government bond bull market. Last year was really marking the end of that bull market. So if you think back to the last 40 years, stock market goes up and down, but the bond market has been a very consistently delivering return to investors. Now, if that is no longer as consistent or as predictable, we need to look for alternative ways to construct a portfolio in order to achieve that diversification process. Um, and the final point I think it is, is interesting from last year is coming back to geopolitics. How does the Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict um, change the way we think about 
energy supply? How do we think about the financial infrastructure if Russia was, or financial sanction was imposed on the Russian Central Bank? What does that mean to international relationship and also financial infrastructure if another country is also facing similar sanction? So I think all of that put together, um, it, to me, last year was very much a turning point on how we think about portfolio construction. It's not all bad news, but certainly I think we now have a much better idea on understanding some of the challenges, and as a result, hopefully coming up with a solution to address those issues. Thanks, Ty. Pak Seng, maybe in uh, private credit direct lending, uh, was that resilient? Was it immune in 2022? And what are your thoughts around that performance? Yeah, I think private credit is probably the only, well, not the only, the one of the very few asset class that actually has positive returns for last year. And I think coming from the private markets, private credit world, I think it's very important to focus on the business fundamentals, right? To kind of take a step back and just kind of filter all the noise and just focus on how actually companies make money, how do they generate cash flow, which is extremely important for lenders like us. So we actually have a very good year. We've done really well last year. And the key reason is that we are very much into what we call software lending, which is a kind of... Um, pretty uh, interesting way of doing uh, uh, investing in private credit. We lend money to software, established software companies that provide mission-critical applications to a large group of corporate clients. These are enterprise software. These are not social media kind of games. These are really important tools for business to run their day-to-day -day operations. So these are highly inelastic demand, and this application got to be used in good and bad times. It's highly resilient to uh, to recession. And for example, compliance software that's being used by banks, you know, um, uh, operating system used in hospitals to run medical device, or we just lend money to uh, companies that help provide software to, uh, to compute VAT for large chains of thousands of retail chains. So these are kind of really bricks and mortar that people use. And the outcome is that you have very predictable income and very, very stable cash flow. And that's great for uh, direct lending. So we actually had no default uh, since inception after deploying more than 30 billions of software loans. And last year, uh, no default as well. So I think it's really important to focus on fundamentals. Think about how companies make money and generate cash flow. And of course, on the capital market side, uh, we structure our loans as 100% floating rate. So we actually make money with a rate high. We actually benefit from a rate high. And the volatility actually helps us a lot because we can actually ask for higher loan margins. So you're thinking about, you know, right now, our average loans of SOFA plus 7, even 8, talking about 12 to 13% just on interest income, contractual. And compare that to like a year ago when market was crazy, you probably can price it at maybe SOFA plus 3 or 4. So actually, the wave is actually helping us a lot. And last but not least, um, traditionally for private lenders, our competitors are the banks. So last year, most of the banks actually, they, they pulled out of the market for different reasons, regulatory, balance sheet issues, volatilities. And for private equity funds, when they do want to do a leverage buyout, they have actually very limited options. They have to come to private credit players like us, especially for software, we are probably the one of the very few options. So we get to pick and choose the best deals. Our pipeline went up a lot, and we can be really selective. And selectivity means quality. So the quality of our portfolio actually went up. 
So I think the bottom line is that we actually make more money with lower risk using software lending. That's what we achieve. Thanks, Paxang. Chad, sports and 2022, uncorrelated with public markets? How do you look back on 2022 for your, you and your firm? Yeah, so looking at 2022 in the business of sport, you must first look at 2020 and 2021, right? When you think about what is the biggest risk to the business of sport, it's a global pandemic, right? And so across our portfolio in 2020 and 2021, we're down on our revenues about 12 to 15%. That's it. Nobody was showing up for live events. Because when I heard you talk about reoccurring revenues, 80 to 85% of the revenues across our sports teams are reoccurring, long duration, CPI inflators within these. People don't realize that in the business of sport. So 2022 for us, we're actually up 14% over the, high water mark, the last high water mark, which is 2019 in revenues. You also saw four major control trades in the business of sport, Denver Broncos in the NFL, Chelsea, right? And these control trades were 30 to 50% above what their appraisal values were. So when you talk about uncorrelated, I think the business of sport is highly uncorrelated to the broader market. Thanks. So the outlook for 23, gentlemen, we've heard a lot today. Can we bring it and focus it down? I heard it needs to be adaptive. That's the positive outlook. Ty, how do you feel about 23? I am much more optimistic. I think I echo a lot of the points that Gene, uh, Eli, and uh, Mansu made earlier, where um, in the near term, I think China's reopening and its impact on the rest of Asia is really exciting. Um, you know, I was asked, like, if I get a dollar every time I was asking whether China's investable last year, I would have done very well for my own portfolio. But uh, I think China is very much back. But uh, let's take a slightly longer term view. Um, Last year's correction was very painful, but to me, it was a great reset of asset valuations. So one thing that we do at JP Morgan Asset Management is that we release a uh, long-term capital market assumption where we look at growth and company earnings and valuation, et cetera, et cetera, and trying to make a forecast of a lot of asset classes, including private markets and public markets, uh, over the next 10, 15 years. And the, when we released the report at the end of 2022, the projected return of a 60-40 portfolio was about 7.3%, and that is the highest we've seen in the last decade. So while last year was incredibly challenging, but it sets up for a much more constructive, much more productive next 10, even 10, 15 years. So from that angle, I think you know, being able to be ready and deploy and invest, I think is very much, or it should be the conversation right now. So I think that's, to me, it's, it's great. I think the fixed income world, again, bond is back. I think that's a well-established view. Uh, if anything, uh, from one of our portfolio manager in the fixed income space, he did mention that today, and again, we've not seen this for a very long time, fixed income is starting to offer equity-like return for 2023. For equities, uh, we talked about China, but for US and developed markets, we might have to be a bit more patient wait for the Fed to be truly done with raising rates, and also for some of the macro indicators in US and Europe to start to turn around, that will be a very potent source of return because typically you see the best return in the early recovery phase of the economic cycle, which we're not there yet, but we should get there sometime later this year. So overall, I'm pretty constructive. Chad, let's move to the US, and we've heard talk of uh, recession probably in the latter part of the year. Uh, how do you think that plays into discretionary uh, spend in the U.S. And, and the outlook for 23? Yeah, if I, if I relate it to the business of sport, which we're tracking thoroughly, 
kind of what I said in my last comments where 80 to 85% of our revenues are contracted over long duration, right, with CPI inflators. So we have pretty good visibility on 85% of the revenue stream, right? The other 15% is kind of this discretionary spend, right? That's game day ticketing, right? That's food and beverage. You know, so we're going to be nimble around that, but we have pretty good visibility on what our core base of revenue is going to be for this next year. So. And Pak Seng, when you think about uh, a rising rate environment or maybe you know, higher for longer, what sort of inflation strategies should investors be thinking about, certainly in the first half of next year? Yep. Um, I, I think just a few comments on inflation, right? I think this is kind of a new normal. And, and the, the thing is that the, you know, the current generation of fund managers probably have not experienced high single-digit inflation. The last time it happened was in the 80s. Those guys have retired by now, right? So if you think about it, how to address inflation, um, you have to look at it from two aspects, right? From the financial aspect, which is higher interest rate, and from, high, from the business aspect, higher cost of doing business. So I think there are two strategies that we like a lot that are highly resilient to inflation, right? The first one is like what, what I mentioned, that is software lending. Uh, why, why is software resilient to inflation? Two important reasons. First, if you think about the kind of software that we lend money to, right? These are mission-critical enterprise software that the company's got to use in good and bad times. So think about the operating system being, you know, being used in a hospital to, to, to manage medical device. Once you start using it for a while, it's very difficult to switch, and you've got to use it, you know, whether your business is doing good or, or badly. And there are lots of sensitive data, and the customer is kind of dependent on the supplier, which means you have pricing power, right? Pricing power is very important in an inflationary environment. And the moment you have pricing power, you can pass some of your costs to your customers. So that's very important. So that's for software. And then the second point is about the supply chain. See, the longer is your supply chain, the more vulnerable you are to inflationary pressures, right? Think about manufacturing. You've got to worry about tons of things. Raw material prices, energy prices, factory costs, labor costs, logistic costs. How about software? Well, the whole supply chain of software is just, well, simply a bunch of software engineers delivering the service through the cloud. Who cares about factory? Who cares about logistic? Now, who cares about raw material, right? So, so yeah, actually having a simple supply chain is one of the factors why software is resilient to inflation. So that's from a business fundamental point of view. Another strategy that we like a lot that is resilient to inflation is net lease. So what is net lease? Net lease simply is we actually buy mission critical real estates from large corporations. You know, we're talking about Amazons, Walgreens, investment grade companies. So they sell this mission critical assets to us and we lease it back, sales and lease back, with a 15, 20 years contract and with a guaranteed uh, rental income during the 15, 20 years. So you're practically getting investment grade income, right? And with a rental escalation. But the most important thing is that we do not bear any of the operating costs, right? All these costs is being borne by the tenant. The landlord, the investors has no operating costs. So what can be more inflation hedged than having no cost to inflate, right? This is the extreme case. So you basically structure away your inflation risk through a net lease contract and protect your portfolio from inflation. So these are the two strategies that we like a lot, software lending and net lease. So one of the poll questions we had earlier was the holding of cash. And we hear a lot about elevated holdings of cash, holding cash perhaps too long, cash for comfort, given where we've been in 2022. 
Ty, what are your thoughts around holding cash as a strategy? Well, uh, absolutely. I think you know this is the question I've been asked a lot in the past three months because in Singapore, in Hong Kong, in many parts of Asia, investors are able to get four percent, five percent with fixed deposits. Um, I think this is the wrong time to be having too much cash on your hands, or rather, it's the wrong time to start locking up your cash for a couple of reasons. First of all, you mentioned earlier, uh, everyone in this room and a lot of institutional investors we've come across, they have a very strong, very high cash position. Now, we all know if a market has too much or have too much of a position of one particular asset, the long-term return of the assets can't be that great. So I would argue exactly the same applies to cash. So that's the first point. The second point is, um, if we are at the cusp of a recovery, whether it's in China right now or US and Europe later in the year, uh, you want to have that liquidity ready to participate. If you lock your money in your fixed deposit for six months or 12 months, you are using a sports analogy, you're going to be a spectator, you're not going to be in the game. So you need to be able to have that liquidity ready in order to participate in that recovery, which as I mentioned earlier, typically is the best part of the return in the whole cycle. Um, and at the same time, there are great alternatives uh, available to you to generate that 4%, 5%, whether it's US government bonds, whether it's you know, investment corporate debt. But at the same time, with those assets, you have that flexibility to switch and participate in other assets or equity or, or, or alternatives if the markets start to really come back. So I think you know, overall, uh, I just think that cash was a great performer of 2022. Um, usually cash do not outperform for more than a year. If you look back to the last 20 years, there were five episodes, or calendar years, there were five episodes where cash outperformed a 60-40 portfolio. But every single time, obviously with the exception of 2022, we don't know what's going to happen this year, with the exception of 2022, every single time in the following year, cash bond portfolio significantly up from cash. So not that history always repeats itself, but I think there are conditions in place for us to have some liquidity, to be ready, but locking it up in a fixed deposit is probably the last thing you want to do at this point. Thanks, Ty. Chad, in the alternative space and sports, how are you thinking about deploying and not being a spectator? How are you getting ready for the game? Yeah, I would say in 2023, some of the key themes for me personally are a couple of things. One, volatility is opportunity, right? Across my investment career, when there's volatility, that is some of the best opportunities that I've seen. So we're going to stay poised to be ready to capture those opportunities. The second one is discipline is destiny. That's, you know, for me, it's being disciplined in our underwriting, right? Because we want to be preserving our cash when we need to be, but allocating it when these opportunities arise. And in North American sports, which if you look at our portfolio, about 80 to 85% of our portfolios in North American sports, we're the only scaled solution to provide growth capital, liquidity solutions to these control owners that need to go build a new stadium, want to take out some LPs, buy another sports team. We're it. We're their only call. So we're going to be very disciplined and opportunistic. Pak Sang, similar question. Where is Blue Owl looking in terms of deployment? Where are the opportunities to take your dry powder? Beyond net lease and uh, software lending, what else do you guys like this year? Well, we actually focus on net lease and software lending, so we're still gonna focus on that this year. 
And uh, we have another business, uh, we call it Dow Capital. It's actually very much into buying uh, shares of uh, fund managers, private equity fund managers. We call it the GP Stakes business. It's extremely um, very stable. You get a kind of mid-teens kind of yield and, and you can hold it for a long, long time. So that's another business that we, uh, we're focusing on. But by zooming into uh, software lending and net lease, uh, in the software lending space, actually there are two segments that are getting more and more interesting. The first one is what we call Tech Private. So a lot of really good software companies that are listed, their share price actually went down quite significantly right, during the correction. But the business fundamentals are totally okay. Very stable cash flow, huge amount of uh, stabilities, lots of high-level clients. So a lot of private equity firms are actually taking them private to restructure the business and they need leverage. So they come to us and we finance them because um, these companies typically have very low debt. So we do it in a low LTV and we can get even you know, low teens of interest by taking very little risk. So that's the take private part, right? And then the second part is financing pre-IPO unicorns. Okay, it may not be as risky as you think. These are like really large, you know, on average $5 billion market cap companies uh, with very stable cash flow, large groups of clients preparing to go IPO. But guess what? The, their IPOs are all delayed, right, due to market conditions. And if they were to go do a pre-IPO equity financing now, it's going to be a down round. Like 90% is going to be a down round. So as a CEO or shareholders of uh, these unicorns, the last thing you want to do is a down round just before your IPO, right? So they come to us, and we've been talking to a lot of these unicorns, and they're offering us that fantastic terms. We can lend money to them with a low single-digit loan-to-value, which means 90% and above of equity buffer with very little debt, and we take the credit risk. And we charge high teens of interest, and the best thing is that we get a conversion right, right? So we kind of have to kick and eat it, right? So if they go IPO and they reach a certain share price, we actually convert into equity. So we're taking kind of limited credit risk with equity upside. So that's something that we're looking a lot. And on the net lease space, you'll find that right now, the Fortune 500 companies are much, much more open to do a net lease. When markets are good, right, when debts are cheap, when equity prices are high, it's companies like Amazon, when they want to raise, let's say, a billion dollars, they just issue equities, they issue debt, but today is very different. We just did a few deals uh, with Amazon. These are all public uh, information. And, and companies like that, they treat net lease as an alternative form of financing. To us, it's an investment. To them, it's a financing means. And they're much willing to give us a significant discount in the acquisition price in exchange for the certainty that they can use the asset for 15, 20 years. So there are very few players who can actually create this sort of net lease structure, and we're one of them. And we are continue optimistic that we can make a lot of money using net lease strategy. Okay. So, so I'm just looking at the time, and I want to try and bring together the three themes that we've already discussed, which is really, what do we learn from 2022? We're optimistic and adaptive, I think, about 23, uh, and we need to be nimble and ready to deploy cash. So when we think about that, we heard Gene talk about how we at BOS have changed our SAA to uh, increase the allocation to alt. So I really want to drill down a little bit around the thoughts from a macro strategist around that 60-40 portfolio, 
what should you be thinking about in terms of that allocation to alts? And then I probably want to explore with you two gentlemen a little bit more around what are you hearing on the street? What are the benefits? Why do some people actually do that to help some of our investors and our clients here really think about allocating some of that cash? Yeah. Ty? Um, look, I think just to sort of bring back what we discussed earlier on, we are no longer in a zero environment. And, um, you know, the, the, the investor expectations on equity and fixed income and the relationship between the two is also shifting. So in a way, I think uh, there was a great chart uh, earlier on that shows you some of the uh, important attributes that the whole alternative asset class can provide to investors, which would be um, adding the ability to, to diversify your portfolio uh, so that you, know, you can manage your risk a little bit, uh, a, lot, a lot better. Uh, the ability to generate income, again, uh, the competition for income is, is getting higher because you can simply get a U.S. Treasury yield for 3%, 4%, um, and therefore, you know, what can generate better income than that? I think that is going to be a really important question uh, to investors. I think, I think, I think you know, if you say, oh, I've got, a, I've got a bonds at 5%, that's good for now, but that may not be sufficiently attractive down the line. So I think alternatives offer a lot of these um, income generation opportunity. And the last thing is, um, we do think that the, world, the global inflation environment, we're not going to stay high forever, but we're likely to see greater degree of volatility. If you look at uh, commodity prices, food prices, what we went through in the last you know, 12, 18 months, uh, central banks, uh, the potential errors in policies, how governments are running their fiscal policy, all of that adds together, it adds to really the end of the low inflation era that we've seen. You know, globalization become more regionalization. Um, all of that is going to make our inflation environment much more challenging. So how do we protect ourselves against inflation? Again, via private markets, via alternatives. I think that's where a lot of institutional investors in Asia, in the US, in Europe, have already deployed their capital in alternatives because they see the benefits in um, helping them to manage the portfolio. I think now these uh, strategies, these alternatives are much more available to investors across APAC. I think that's why you know, we've seen, again, a strong pickup in these areas in, in, in many Asian markets, in Singapore, in Hong Kong, in China, in, in Southeast Asia. That's very much a, an area that we've seen very strong growth. Thanks, Ty. Chad, as you travel through the US talking to both wealth and institutional investors, what is it that you're hearing around allocation? Why do they like alts? How, what, is it, what role does it play in their portfolios? Yeah, so specifically with sports, right? And where a lot of our investors are big pension funds, endowments. And if you look at sports and the business of sports in North America, smart money's been going into North American sports for 20 years, right? So if you look at some of the control owners in North American sports teams, it's the managing partner of Blackstone, Ares, Apollo, Fortress, TPG. But it wasn't until three years ago that institutional capital was allowed in to invest, right? And that's how Arctos was built, to take advantage of this opportunity. Um, and institutions love this asset class because it's infra-like in regards to its long-term licenses, long-term media rights contracts. It's got real assets. So Golden State Warriors are in our portfolio. The Golden State Warriors own their arena. They own their adjacent real estate, a hotel, office building. They got about $2.5 billion of real estate assets. We know how those react in inflationary environments. Um, the business of sport, you know, if you're so lucky to have owned 
a team, over the last 10 years, it has outperformed the S&P, small caps, US buyout, with lower volatility. There's little to no leverage in the system. I think the average loan to value across our portfolio is about 13%, and that's governed by the league, right? And then it's an uncorrelated asset. Um, the other piece of this, so it kind of fits in these downside protected you know, schemes, but also has these upside optionality. Right? People love the growth prospects, whether it's buying another team, layering it into a portfolio, building more real estate, um, whether it's the impact of sports betting into the ecosystem, international expansion, the NBA, NBA Africa, NBA Asia, right? taking advantage of the international expansion. And so I think when you look at all this, you have downside protection, it has infra-like qualities, it's got real assets, and it's got upside growth optionality. And so when we talk about risk-reward, we just think it's phenomenal risk-reward, and that's why folks, alternatives, want to come into this. The other piece in North American sports that's very uh, compelling, huge barriers to entry to get into there, right? So if you are actually a managing member of Aries Blackstone and you own equity in a team, your firm cannot invest in a North American sport team in that league, right? So there's probably three or four other buckets of, uh, that prohibit people to go invest in that. But there are real barriers to entry to invest in this asset class. And so that's why, folks, seeing the uncorrelated nature, how it's going to react in inflationary environments, little to no exposure to interest rate risk, really, really uncorrelated. Thanks, Chad. Pak saying we're almost at time. Can you bring us home in terms of summing up why should our investors and our clients think about allocating to alts? Okay, uh, let, let me try to do that. Um, I think, let me just correct one common misconception about alternative. So I've been advising clients on alternative and, and the kind of conception is that, the concept is that alternative is high risk, that's why it's high return, right? That, that is like the furthest away from the truth. So what you're doing in alternative is that you're basically trading liquidity for higher returns. You're converting liquidity into returns. That's a very important concept. And liquidity management is actually a very important part of this whole alternative strategy. And if you think about, we mentioned about the 60-40 uh, portfolio construction, it's not working last year. Um, I have a different theory. You know, the biggest uh, assumption for the 60-40 to work is that you have a negative correlation or a low correlation between stocks and bonds. But this correlation is not a stable number. It fluctuates and even at, you know, increased in extreme cases. In fact, the biggest correlation between stocks and bonds is they're owned by human beings. And they all have fears. So in extreme cases, there's panic selling and good and bad stocks, stocks and bonds that all fell together. So why do I bring out that? Because if you think about uh, alternative, especially private markets, you actually have constraints on liquidity. And to me, liquidity, it's the amplifier of fear. The more liquid is an asset, the more panic selling you're subject to. So for alternative, for private markets, typically or even for semi-liquids, it's redeemable every quarter, every month or close-end fund, you can't really redeem. But that kind of provides a mechanism, like a circuit breaker, to prevent panic selling, right? So if you look at the different you know, financial crises over the last few cycles, actually alternative outperformed public markets, exactly because of that. It forced investors to be rational, to not to engage in panic selling. So alternative private markets can actually be a very important diversification tool, right? Because that's how you really provide stabilization, uh, stability in your portfolio. So the first function of alternative is a portfolio stabilizer, right? And the second function is actually a return enhancer as well, right? You actually make more money with less risk. Why? Well, strategies like what I mentioned, 
direct lending, software lending, you know, leverage, buyout, net lease. The only way to access is through private markets. You just cannot get this sort of exposure through the public markets. So it kind of opens up a whole new universe of investment opportunities. And there are more private companies than public companies, by the way. It's a very big universe that probably investors did not appreciate the opportunity that they can access. So I think the bottom line is that investors can get higher returns by accessing a new universe and potentially lower risks, having a less correlated asset class as a portfolio stabilizer. Thank you. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's been great to have a chat and get your insights. This podcast was brought to you by Bank of Singapore.